Episode 172, Jim McCann, founder of 1-800-Flowers.com. The biggest mistake I think I, I know I made was in uh, 10 years into business, I had started the company. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes. But what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth, and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. For more information about Jim, look for links in the show notes. You can find a video and transcript and more by going to markraven.com slash mistake 172. And now, Jim McCann. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Rabin, and our guest today, I'm real excited. Uh, he is Jim McCann, the founder and chairman of 1-800-Flowers, which is was one of the first companies to pioneer and popularize um, the use of both uh, toll-free uh, phone numbers and websites to sell goods and services directly to consumers. It's a company that um, I'm sure most of you know. It's been around for quite a while. You know, such a, a great success story. So before I tell you a little bit more uh, about Jim, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Great. Great, Mark. Uh, nice to be with you today. Yeah, it's a real, it's a treat. Uh, I feel myself being uh, nervous interviewing somebody I've seen, uh, you know, in the commercials and recognizing your voice. So I'll take a breath and make sure I'm not making a mistake by uh, <laughs> being too excited or uh, too nervous. But, you know, Jim is, of course, a highly successful entrepreneur. He's been a public speaker, a published author, books including uh, Talk is Not Cheap, The Art of Conversation Leadership. His passion is helping people deliver smiles, and he and his company have done that for a long time. You know, his belief in the universal need for social connections and interaction led to the founding of 1-800-Flowers, and it's grown into the world's leading florist and gift shop. And and, and there's also Celebrations.com, a leading website for expert party planning content and advice. So I encourage you to go check out those websites and to, to go use them. Um, so, Jim, you know, before, you know, there's a lot of things we can talk about from your career and the evolution of 1-800-Flowers. But, you know, thinking back to all of the different things that you've done and that you've gone through, what would you say is your favorite mistake? Well, that's different from biggest, right? Favorite, biggest? You're going to mix it up on me? <laughs> well, no, a biggest mistake may or may not be your favorite. You know, I think a favorite is, you know, big enough where it's stuck with you maybe um, over time. Well, I, I, I would have told you that for the biggest mistake I've made and continue to make is spending a lot of time thinking about the mistakes I've made. <laughs> but, if, but of those, those that I've spent time thinking about, the one that, uh, that comes to mind at, at, at knee jerk is, uh, is two sides of the coin, Mark. The biggest mistake I think I, I know I made was in uh, 10 years into business, I had started the company. I built it out as a retail chain. We had a bunch of stores and it just dawned on me that <laughs> this didn't make sense, <laughs> that there was no economy of scale in having uh, a whole lot of stores uh, and without uh, without a unified back end. So uh, I was looking around at how else can we uh, build a big national company? And at that time, back in the mid 1980s, 86, in fact, uh, 800 numbers were still no. Now, new. So 
this is takes some uh, explanation because young people uh, today uh, don't even know what you're talking about with an 800 number. Yeah, I know what they are, but why? Why are there 800 numbers? Yeah. But back in those days, the new technology were 800 numbers because uh, long distance telephoning was expensive, and uh, and here was your chance to absorb the cost of that and allow people to call for free. So toll free calling. Uh, and uh, I thought, geez, if you could, uh, if all the companies that were coming out at that time were spending a fortune trying to get people to remember their 800 number. And they'd have singing and dancing and kick lines and every way they could to get you to remember their number. I thought, geez, if you could just get a number that you could dial off an alphanumeric keypad, which there are less and less of, of course, uh, then you wouldn't have to spend all, all that money on memory tricks and just get your name out in front of them. And lo and behold, I wound up buying a company that had in it the telephone number that corresponded with the 800 flowers. Now, being unsophisticated, I'm a, I'm a hardworking social worker, reformed to become a florist in New York, built this chain of shops, but not very sophisticated in the ways of M&A and uh, business and financing those businesses. So I wound up uh, buying the company but I think, Mark, I'm going to save all that money on this due diligence stuff. You know, lawyers and bankers and accountants, why spend all that money? <laughs> so I, I did what we would now call due negligence. I wound up buying this failed company and naively signing for all of its liabilities that I didn't know existed. And so the biggest mistake I made was going it alone, trying to save money and being unsophisticated and not knowing uh, what the value was of the accountants and the due diligence and the lawyers to make a, a, a real clean deal. And I woke up in the morning having invested everything I'd accumulated in 10 years of working seven days a week and building out this chain of flower shops. I sunk every dollar of it and a lot more into acquiring this company just to get the 800 number. And then I found out, oh, wait a minute, I'm $7 million now in debt on a personal liability that uh, that exceeded everything I thought I was paying for this, which was a couple of million dollars. But the good news is uh, it worked. Uh, that is, we dug out of that hole and we did become a brand. And then uh, and we became a brand uh, not having money by some good luck, uh, some incredible good fortune and uh, making a lot of mistakes. But we never had a lot of money left, so we couldn't make big mistakes. So the biggest mistake was the inverse of the biggest success, which was buying the 800 number and having being forced to think more broadly, more grandly. And in the next five years, we became a household name and the first real national brand in the floral business. And uh, the rest, they say, is history still being written. Uh, so we went from retail stores to an 800 number, changed the name of our retail stores to the 800 number, which really confused the hell out of people. <laughs> and then when the internet came along in the early 90s, and my brother uh, pushed us into the internet because we said, if we could change this industry, if it is this industry, uh, with no money and no real knowledge, well, what's the next emerging technology that would come along that would displace us? And of course, it became clear over the next half a dozen years that the internet was big and real and going to be around. And so we uh, changed our name from 1-800-Flowers.com to 1-800-Flowers to 1-800-Flowers.com. 
And, and so we've always been a bit paranoid about what the next technology will be. And that has served us well, Mark. Mm, yeah. Because it would have been a mistake then to miss any of those future trends and to think, well, the future was going to be forever in phone sales. What, I'm curious. Yeah, what you, percentage- know, you know, everything is changing. You're not quite sure how, but the only thing you're certain of things are changing and your foundation is weakening unless you're getting ready for the new foundation. Yeah. I'm just curious real quick. How, how much of your business today is still through um, telephone sales as opposed to the internet or an app? It's well, uh, it's a, it, it's not easily separable. The answer is 90 plus percent is internet, but we still do have a lot of phone calls. Uh, we do a few billion dollars a year in sales. So, uh, 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 even even ten percent is a lot of phone traffic, and when people want to do service, customer service, uh, oh, I sent flowers to uh, uh, a friend's daughter who just had a baby in the hospital. Oops, she's out of the hospital already. Can we reroute them someplace else? They want to do that on the phone. They want to talk to someone who can help them. So we still have lots of tele activity. Yeah. Uh, so I'd like to come back later and ask you about some of the the customer service aspects of your business, but, you know, thinking back to your story and, and Jim, you know, I'm very grateful that, you know, that you would be willing to tell that story. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm curious, just a couple of questions back to what had played out there. Had you tried buying just the phone number? Was it possible to, tr- um, to transfer that asset? Did you pursue that? And they said, well, no, you've got to buy the whole business. Yes. That, that's essentially what happened because, uh, there was really nobody in charge. It was just a, a collection of assets, not many. But that essentially was we we bought the company that had the telephone number. Back then, Mark, uh, you didn't really own the telephone number. You you had a the t- telephone company owned it. And if you it was assigned to you, you could use it. So that's why we had to buy the entity that had the number. Uh, the laws changed subsequently. And uh, the FCC ruled that the customer owns the number which begot a whole different industry. That's what caused MCI to be born and WorldCom and uh, and uh, uh, the breakup of AT&T and the existence of Verizon. All of those were a result of those telecommunication acts changing. And uh, so they, they all had a big impact on us. But at that time, you had to buy the company to get the number. Yeah. Now, you know, there's a couple of themes you always talk about here on My Favorite Mistake. One is learning from the mistake. So as you acquired other companies, um, I'm, I'm guessing you made sure you didn't repeat that mistake of trying to save money or skimp on the due diligence. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, I think we're always learning, Mark. I, that's why you know people like you exist who know a lot and can bring a lot to the table. I help uh, help people to to know what they don't know and get better at things that they need to be better at. So that, that's good news to you and your business. But uh, so we still make mistakes, but we try not to make the same mistakes. So yeah, we we any, we've done lots of acquisitions over the years, and we 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 never did one again that uh, we allowed me to make the decision on diligence. <laughs> yeah. And what about you, Mark? When when you ask that question of people, whether it's uh, on your podcast or it's uh, people in your uh, in your customer base, your the people you consult with, uh, how do you counsel them in terms of? Uh, what they do with that mistake. So clearly I've made a joke out of that mistake. It was painful for a long time. Sure. Uh, and, and that's something that we try and do is uh, celebrate our mistakes, if you will, mm-hmm. 
because otherwise I don't want I, I don't want people in my shop to think that they can't make a mistake. So uh, we had a lady working for us who was very creative. She worked here for a long time, and uh, she created a wall of shame. It was basically three bookcases put together, matching bookcases. And she put all of our worst ideas on that. And, uh, uh, and, and what I liked about that was it was funny. It was called the wall of shame, but it really wasn't shameful. It was designed to take the shame out of it because we all have things that we, things we've done in our life that we're ashamed of. And it's a powerful, uh, crippling emotion. But when you make, you turn it into a joke, uh, or you laugh at yourself for the, what a stupid thing I did. It helps us to compartmentalize it and give it its appropriate import if it deserves any. And it tells the people around you that you can make a mistake, learn from it, try not to make the same one again, and 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 turn it into a, a positive experience, a learning experience. Yeah. yeah. No, I think you summarize my my views and what I've summarized from all the people I've interviewed, you know, who other people who have asked that same question, you know, I think one, one thing you're touching on there is creating a culture where people can share their mistakes so that we can learn from them from them. And I think a lot of that starts with the CEO where you had been in that role as founder and CEO. If Jim McCann is willing to talk about mistakes he's made, then I'm, I'm sure that sets an example for not just the people who reported to you at the corporate level, but to people all throughout the organization. It doesn't mean that we can just go do any wild and crazy thing and then just say, well, yeah, you know, it was a mistake. We learned. Like, I think there's a balance. So maybe putting it back to you as a question of like, how do you find the balance of recognizing we're all human, we're going to try things that we thought were a good idea that turned out to be a mistake versus just trying, you know, throwing stuff against the wall without thinking or analyzing or planning how how do how do you find that balance when, whenever let's say you're launching a new product or any employee has a new idea well there's a, a I, I i'll put it back to you in this way mark uh there was a fellow who was a private equity uh fellow banker turned private equity very very successful and what he used to say to me frequently was think of the best ideas the best businesses or business ideas that you've come across, if, if you didn't laugh at them the first time you heard it, it probably wasn't bold enough. So uh, I had occasion to see just a few weeks ago, Fred Smith, the founder of FedEx. And I met Fred in 1986 when I when we first changed our name to 1-800-Flowers and we, we started to do business with FedEx. And uh, he reminded me uh, three weeks ago when I saw him that 1986, he said, I, I, I don't think you can really ship flowers to my system. <laughs> And, and we, lo and behold, that year we did, and we, we've shipped quite a few flowers through the FedEx system. So we had a good laugh at it. Laugh at it in, in two respects. One is uh, uh, he laughed at the fact that he said this will never work, and it's a big part of his business now. And the second part of it is, as my friend uh, Steve, the private equity guy, used to say, uh, Fred will tell you that the first 30 or 40 people he showed the FedEx idea to laughed at it. Right. They thought it was yeah. ridiculous that you had to build a whole infrastructure and charge $15 for what otherwise cost 15 cents to send a, an envelope across the country. Everyone thought it was a, a funny. I, it was funny. It wasn't, that can't be, that can't work. And I think Steve had it right that 
uh, fear of fear of being shamed or or a, fr- a fear of being bold is oftentimes a great inhibitor to great ideas and success. Yeah, and 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 Fred Smith didn't he get like a C minus on some sort of schoolwork where he was proposing the idea of FedEx? Do at, I remember at the Harvard right? Business School. Uh, maybe maybe is a little legend in that, but it works for me. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but one other thing, and I, I was going to ask you this, I think one thing that's interesting as individuals and as leaders is to find the balance of, you know, thinking about mistakes enough so that we learn from them without belaboring it, without beating ourselves up. I've had other guests sort of bring up that idea, um, learning without making ourselves feel bad. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm curious when you said earlier, it's a mistake to spend too much time reflecting on mistakes. Like how... How do you decide what's tends, too much? It tends to calcify your ability to move, and uh, you tend to, whoa, I'll never make that mistake again. You know, it, Mark, there's a, a man who died just a few years ago who was one of my heroes, business heroes in life, and, and I was fortunate to get to spend some time with him over the years. His name was Mark, uh, excuse me, uh, Wayne Heisinger. Oh. And Wayne, Wayne, a remarkable guy, I'm sure you know who he was. Uh, created five five different Fortune 500 companies. And uh, one time in a conversation, just he and I in his, uh, in his uh, conference room, he said, look, Jim, people like you, people like me, we make probably a lot more mistakes than other people that we know, people around us. We probably make a lot more mistakes. But the difference between successful entrepreneurs and others, people like you and me and others, is that we pick ourselves up, we dust ourselves off and we get on with it. And we don't spend all our time wringing our hands. Oh, I'll never make that mistake again. He says, it paralyzes too many people. That's why he's the one who taught me to package it, make fun of it, and make it part of your lore and legend, your story. And uh, and I think that has personal psychological benefits to it too. So if you saw somebody at a party, a friend of yours, you're in your young 20s, and you see that person at the party and they maybe they had a, a beverage or two more than they should have. And they do something stupid. You think it's funny because he did. It. But he might be ashamed of it. So a lesson that we can teach ourselves is the thing that you feel shame about, the mistake you made, if it was somebody else, it would be funny. Make it in your own mind about somebody else. Teach yourself to laugh at yourself. And, and that way you package and manage your shame. Because shame can retard your willingness to act, to be bold, or to, to change. And that's, that's, a dangerous, uh, that's a dangerous thing to allow you to take over. So uh, just yesterday, uh, my brother was talking about a deal we were looking at. And he said, well, you know, it's, uh, it, if, if they had uh, gone public last year, they would have gone public for $600 million. And we can get it for a whole lot less. I said, wait a minute. We made a mistake back about 20 years ago when we bought a company that was going to go public and we bought it for a lot cheaper and it went to zero. Yeah. So looking at what it could have been valued <laughs> is not a way to value things. So it's still painful, but I still, I, but I try to laugh about it. Yeah. Well, I think, I think that's great advice. And it seems like that comes from maybe that's the social worker in you um, thinking about how to treat yourself and how to treat others. I think that's a big part of it. I learned a lot working in that world. I had some great uh, teachers and mentors. 
And one of the, one of the big things, I, I ran a home for teenage boys and they came from very tough circumstances. And uh, that's, that's one of the things we worked on all the time was uh, telling a story. I think they do it in the, in the sober community too. I think it's a, a big part of AA where people can tell their story and they become very, very good at articulating how they got to the depths and how they've recovered. And I think those, I think we can learn some great lessons from people who have been successful in a 10 step recovery world in terms of saying to to remove the shame uh, uh, or the embarrassment uh, from mistakes we've made. Yeah. I think that's, that's really uh, insightful. It's really um, great food for thought. Um, I want to, you know, maybe change directions a little bit, how to segue to something a little bit lighter than that. Um, You were approached my understanding is that you were approached to be one of the first companies, the first bosses featured on the show Undercover Boss before it had ever aired and that you turned it down three times before saying yes. I mean, what, was that a mistake? Would it, would it have been a mistake to not ever say yes to, to that? Uh, it, it was both. It was a mistake to say no. <laughs> yeah. Thank God they came back. And then it was a great thing for us to do. I, I said no until finally uh, I put a twist on it. And the twist was this. I said, why don't we do it this way? My brother, Chris, is now the president of the company. I want him to know more and more about all of the uh, our aspects of our business and each of our brands. So why don't I'll agree that we'll do Undercover Boss, but I won't go undercover. I'll send my brother undercover so that he really learns the business. And uh, so they thought about it and they came back and the people at CBS came back and said, okay, we like that premise because it usually, uh, they said it was going to open up with a boardroom scene. I said, instead of a boardroom scene, it's Chris and I and me giving him this idea and sending him out. They said, okay, well, you know, we haven't aired the show. They had three, I think, in the can, but it hadn't aired yet. So no one knew what it was about. So I said, they said, but here's our ask. We want you to commit. We want to play this brother ankle. We like that. But we want you to, and I'm 10 years older than Chris, so I've always been his much older brother. But we want you to commit to go into the field and surprise him. But it has to be a genuine surprise. You can't say, okay, I'm going to tell him and he'll act surprised. It really, you really have to surprise him. And uh, I thought, <laughs> I've been tortured him my whole life. <laughs> That's not out of character right. for me. And they yeah. agreed to it. I agreed to it. And we had a blast with it. My brother did a great job on it because he did all the heavy lifting. And I just went in and surprised him in two locations and one of them made it to the air. But it was a wonderful uh, experience for our whole company because everybody got involved in it. Everyone was so proud of it. And then CBS uh, did an event for us. We rented an auditorium here at a local uh, university on Long Island for the closing scene where Chris to go on stage and reveal that he did this. And uh, so they sent buses, they bust 500 of our people over to this uh, auditorium and they put on a big party for us afterwards. So it was a wonderful culture building experience for us. And everybody was so proud when it aired. And it's, I think the, I don't know if it still is, but for years it was the most popular episode ever of, of that show. And it's a great show. I think it's still on the air. Uh, and the reruns keep running forever. 
So uh, I'll, all the time, people come to Ah, oh, I saw your episode of Undergrad. And of course, it's on YouTube and everything now. Oh, I saw just the other night, my kids and I watched that episode. It was so funny. You know? So it was, it was terrific for us as a company. So yes, it was a mistake to say no. But thank God they came back and gave me a chance to right my mistake. Yeah. And then the way we did it was fun and clever. And, and it really birthed Chris as a leader of this company. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what was the undercover brother uh, surprise? Were you really, really in disguise? Like he would recognize your voice, right? No, he was in disguise. I wasn't. Okay. So, so he, what was the surprise? Uh, he out his beard and he, yeah. he was, uh, the, the premise was he was an out-of-work painter. Our dad was a painting contractor. So we worked for our dad's kids. And uh, and they were he was in a jobs program trying to learn a new skill uh, that the state had sponsored. And so he was working in a, one of our flower shops undercover. So they didn't know who he mm-hmm. was. Yeah. And they knew who I was because I called and said I was coming. And uh, and so I walked in on him. Here he is nervous that I'm going to break his cover. And uh, and I'm torturing him. And now I'm asking the manager of the store is a wonderful young man. I said, is, is this guy any good? And then he's telling me, whispering to me off camera, he's okay, but I'm not sure he's got the skill sets for this. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so then uh, they filmed us catching up in a restaurant uh, a couple of miles away after the episode when he comes and yells at me for risking his cover. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm curious, like uh, the, the original no answers, was it just a matter of like the show was an unknown? You were too busy. You thought there was some risk. It sounded hokey. Sounded hokey. <laughs> I, it's, it, it sounded it sounded like a lot of work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought maybe it could be bad for the brand, and it yeah. sounded hokey. But we all know hokey works when it's good, <laughs> clean fun. And yeah. I I was too naive to realize that. Yeah, I mean one one reflection I have of you know watching. I haven't watched every episode of that show, but I've watched it enough to to know the premise. And and I, and I think it's kind of interesting. You talked about wanting Chris to learn the business. So this is the one thing I've thought about of. How often the CEO feels uncomfortable or unwelcome, really, like with the frontline employees and where the work is done. You know, I'm I'm, I'm curious if, what what your broader reflections or advice for other leaders would be about getting comfortable interacting with you know the people who are on the phone with customers or in the flower shop putting together the orders. Um, is there anything that that you've learned or advice you would have about that without having to go undercover? Well, I would tell you that because, you know, I'm a bootstrap entrepreneur and not a, uh, you know, a private equity uh, uh, business school educated entrepreneur. They, they have skills and knowledge I've never had and still uh, still struggle to acquire. But because I'm a bootstrapper, I've done every one of those jobs. So I am very comfortable uh, uh, getting in the trenches. And I'm very, uh, so we have about 500 people here in this office on Long Island. We have about 10,000 people overall. Uh, I'm, I'm, a, I'm very comfortable with any kind of people. Uh, I've, I've been them. <laughs> I've done every one of those jobs. Maybe not as well as they do it. Certainly not as well as they do it. So I'm very comfortable, and I, and I genuinely like getting in and around. So here we have a, a, big, a big office here. If I'm in the office, I want to do a walkabout every day. Some days I can get two in, you know, uh, but there's certainly at least one every day. I want to, I want to stop in to see people. I want to, uh, I want to cause trouble. I want to, uh, you know, get some yucks going because I pick up the pulse of how things are going. I, 
I learn from people every day. I stop and interact with different teams. And you just learn. You get a sense for what's going on, how people are feeling. And they get a sense of uh, what's important to us, and that's them. And I, I, I just don't know any other way to do it, uh, Mark. So it's not something I do in terms of uh, someone taught me to, to really stay connected. It's something I really like to do and comfortable doing, and I don't know how to do it any other way. Sure, sure. Well, Jim, maybe one last question for you. You know, for all of the the high stakes moments, you talked about people wanting to call in and get help. Um, you know, all the reasons we send flowers, celebrations, uh, funerals, high stakes moments. Um, I, I imagine there's a lot of customer service mistakes that could happen. Is is, is there anything that you've tried to build within the company culture? Uh, maybe kind of final thoughts about you know reacting to mistakes um, that 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 happen right with that uh, customer calling in. Um, how to recover Mark, I, I from mistakes? We've never made it. We've never made a mistake ever. <laughs> well, that, that's the key to your growth. Okay, there you have it. If only it were true. Yeah. Uh, customer service is a big and important piece. Frankly, Mark, I think it's one of the reasons why we don't have more competition because this is a tough business. And uh, and if you have a business, let's say you have a business that, with a membership model, you don't want to be in this business because it has a much higher percentage of fails than pretty much any other business. It's We're not just delivering a, uh, a manufactured product in a box. These are hand deliveries. These are incomplete addresses. This is, uh, you make the delivery and she's a teacher, but she... She left early that day. She took a half day. Now it's yours. You're stuck with this package. So there's a million things that can go wrong. So I think it keeps competition down because it's hard and it's expensive and it's painful. But what we do uh, in listening to your question, Mark, uh, we, and we just had our customer service organization in town from all over the country, all over the world last week, and em- emphasizing this point. A, we got to make it right. And making it right means it doesn't matter whose fault it was. We got to make it right. So maybe the customer gave us the wrong address by mistake. So it doesn't matter. It's still our mistake. And what we always tell our people on the front lines, uh, uh, taking care of those issues, fixing them is two things. One is it's not so much what you do. It's your attitude. It's your empathy. And secondarily, uh, if you don't just do enough to get by, do enough that they want to write a letter to me telling me how, how pleased they were with how you handled their situation. And if, and if we can be in the ear reminding them, we, we keep binders. Now it's all digital, but it used to be binders of letters we've, I've received, my brother's received from customers telling me that Marjorie did a terrific job and, she, even though I, I, she realized I made the mistake and gave the wrong address, she never told me that. She just said, okay, what's the address you should go to? We'll fix it. We'll get it there. Don't worry. And she called back and checked and said, did your sister-in-law get it? Yes, yeah, she did. Is everything okay? Yes, we're back in good standing. So uh, we always emphasize with people, think about behaving in such a way that the person on the other end of that phone or the other end of that text or chat function uh is so pleased with how you handle it. They want to come and brag about you to me. Yeah. Yeah. So but some of that is, other, it sounds like the service recovery 
I mean, there's one school of thought that that I've, I've heard. This is even going back to the audio industry. I think it was the Saturn brand that customer satisfaction was actually higher when there had been a problem that was resolved well. That those customers were happier than customers that never had a problem. Do do you does that ring true to you at all? I, I think that's true. I think it's an opportunity to to really build a relationship, to really engage. And uh, you know, it's easy when everything goes right, but when something goes wrong and you strike your stuff, I think you can really earn your way into a consideration set of that that customer uh, in a way that uh, is is far superior and more long-lasting than if everything had just gone smoothly. Yeah. Okay, so maybe one final, final question, if, if I can. And, and going back to, you know, earlier you talked about the idea of making fun of your own mistakes. And I imagine then there's a, a different reaction that's required, though, when it's an employee who makes a mistake. Um, Maybe curious final thoughts on, you know, help, helping an employee recover or bounce back the way an entrepreneur might. How would you coach think, them or uh, counsel? From them? a technique point of view, we encourage people to make make mistakes. I'm sure in your practice, Mark, of working with all these different companies all over the world that you do, uh, a lot of it comes down to culture. Mm. And leadership, and they're and it, it, uh, totally uh, entwined. And uh, I think the less the lesson that that we're still learning every day is, if someone does make a mistake, but they did it with the right intention, they were trying to do the right thing, uh, making sure they know that it's okay, and uh, sharing some of your mistakes is the quickest and easy way to do that. So. Uh, in our town hall meetings and our communications with people, we are oftentimes making fun of the mistakes we've, we've made uh, so that they feel comfortable uh, sharing this. But, uh, you know, it depends on the size of the mistake. It depends on the intent. And if their intention was to do the right thing and they, uh, they made a mistake, it's part of our culture that they understand it's not a big deal. So, Jim, I want to you know really thank you for for sharing not just your own you know personal story, but for talking about the leadership and, and the culture elements of as 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 you put it so well, creating a culture where it's okay to admit mistakes and to not maybe you know not take them so seriously, to not make ourselves or others feel bad about that. I um, really appreciate both you know the, the the story and and the insights there. So I again want to encourage everybody go to one eight hundred flowers dot com. Um, go to celebrations.com. Um, I know I'm going to be um, use, using your business more when I've got those opportunities to celebrate or to order flowers and gifts. So, Jim, and really, the best really, way to overcome a mistake is send them flowers. <laughs> <laughs> right. If you've made a mistake, send flowers or one of the other gifts or products that, that you can get. Um, Jim, this has been a real treat. You're a great guest. Um, really appreciate you taking time to do this today. Mark, it's been fun and great to get to know you. And I'm, uh, uh, I think uh, people who call on you to, to to bring the lessons you've learned not only in your own life but the lessons you learn from all your clients are better for it. And I think I think a mistake, uh, another mistake that we make and have made, and try not to make as much as being too cheap to calling a consultant because uh, oh you think oh we should be able to learn this on our own. That's a mistake. The mistake is not turning to somebody like you who's made a career and and a practice out of learning best practices and bringing it able to bring them to the table because you can help them to accelerate a learn a learning element 
And and the, the, sometimes the biggest mistake is not making that call. Well, it's very kind of you, and it's it's very kind. I'm going to add one final um, reflection here. It's kind of you to join me. It was kind of your team to help me out. Um, I, I made a number of mistakes in my initial emails. I don't know if this ever got to you, Jim, where um, I thought there were, I, I, I was going back and forth and I put the wrong date in the email and you know, I was pretty embarrassed. I'm glad that you were still able to come do the interview. I was afraid they were going to say, Jim, this guy's a flake. He makes mistakes. I don't know if this is a good idea. <laughs> As they say in the old country, it doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, again, Jim McCann, Winning 100 Flowers. Thank you. Thank you for that. Thanks for being a guest. Thanks, Mark. You have a great day. Well, again, thanks a lot to Jim McCann. Uh, the episode page for this episode can be found at markgraven.com slash mistake172. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes, how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.